On this Reformation Sunday, as we remember that day, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to that door. I thought I'd inform you that there is a website you can go to called the Lutheran Insult Generator, where you can get a continuous supply of actual insults written by Martin Luther. There's a lot, and they are diverse. Here's a taste from the father of the Reformation, and I quote, I think that if you were alone in the field, an angry cat would be enough to scare you away. Luther's insults will not be our focus today. But I am interested in one of Luther's great contributions to our Reformed tradition that shows up in our scripture readings today, namely, justification. Justification is that great theological word we use to describe the way God puts the world right. It has to do with righteousness, with the way God makes us right with himself and with one another. In his parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, Jesus tells us that it was the tax collector who went home justified rather than the Pharisee. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. The point is that the path to justification with God is not one of self-justification, of lifting ourselves up in righteousness, but that in humility we are justified not by ourselves but by God, who lifts us up in Christ by love, mercy, and grace. The good news of the Reformed doctrine of justification is that we do not set ourselves right with God. God sets us right. That means there's no ground for boasting, for self-righteousness, for the contempt of the Pharisee, because justification is not about anything we can do. But exactly because of this, the good news of justification also means that there's no grounds for shame in God's presence, for standing at a distance like the tax collector with the certainty that we will never be good enough to stand before God. Our righteousness was never the condition on which we are welcomed into God's arms as beloved children. And that means our unrighteousness can never be a reason for being rejected, for being so filled with shame that we refuse to lift our eyes to heaven. We hear from Jesus that it's the tax collector, not the Pharisee, who goes home justified. But I am worried about that tax collector, about the way he is literally beating himself up, standing at a distance, refusing to lift up his eyes to the throne. He might go home justified, but did he go home with the blessed assurance that his prayer was answered, that God was merciful and gracious toward him? Was he filled with God's goodness and lost in his love? There is this tragic irony in our Reformed tradition in the way we talk about justification. We celebrate how we are justified by faith, by the grace of Christ alone, but we do it in a way that borders on self-abuse, beating ourselves up for our sinfulness in the same breath that we talk about how gracious God is to, to us. And with that, we destroy the good news of the gospel. We end up in this weird space where, sure, we might be justified, made right with God, but we do not feel good about it. 
We still feel like we've got to stay away, stay at a distance, keep our eyes averted. In short, I wonder if inside our belief in justification, we still hold on to a belief in shame. Hear the good news. Shame has no place in our justification by God. According to the prophet Joel, the day of the Lord is coming and it will be a day of justification and rejoicing for God's people. O children of Zion, be glad and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. That's another word for justification. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the later rain. Doesn't that rain sound beautiful? We can't always relate directly to the world of Scripture, but this desperate need for rain and the joy of restoration that it brings, we get that. We know this deep place of vulnerability of an agrarian people whose life and livelihood spring from the soil. And when the rain pours down as justification from the Lord, as the world is put right by God, it gives life to gladness and rejoicing. It leaves no room for shame for God's people. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. Our justification by God is supposed to wash over us like drenching rains in a drought What sense does shame make as a response to the glorious reign of God's justification? What is shame anyway? There's a popular writer and speaker who's been making the rounds for a few years now named Brene Brown, who does a lot of work with the subject of shame. She's a research professor at the University of Houston. You can find a couple of TED Talks she's done. She's got a special out on Netflix, too. And she's got this bit on the difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is the feeling of having made a mistake. Shame is the feeling of being a mistake. Guilt is what we deal with when we've done something wrong. Shame is what we're dealing with when we feel there's something wrong with us, with what we are and who we are at the core of our being. I was guilty when I got pulled over on my way to church a year ago for having an out-of-date tag on my license plate. I had my court date, and it was true. I had out-of-date tags. So I stood in front of the courtroom, and when the judge read the charge and asked how I plead, I said to the court, guilty. Shame is how I felt last Monday night when I got a flat tire and was unable to change it. (laughs) It was 9.30 p.m. on the side of I-40. You better believe it was raining. And try as I might, I could not loosen the nuts to change the flat. In my defense, I had just had my tires rotated, and the mechanics used one of those impact wrenches that makes it impossible to loosen the tire by hand. Even the AAA guys had trouble with it. But still... I had to sit there in my car, in the dark, in the rain, for three hours, wallowing in the reality that I was helpless, useless, 
to change my own tire. So guilt versus shame. Making a mistake versus being a mistake. I think this is a helpful distinction, a helpful way of opening up the good news of justification for our lives of faith. Because where guilt might have a role to play, shame does not. Let's look at the parable from Jesus this morning and see how all this works here. The Pharisee in this parable is committed to practicing righteousness, even to an exceeding degree. The examples he offers of giving a tenth of all his income and fasting twice a week go beyond what is commanded in the law. Another way of saying this is that he is not guilty of breaking any law. But he apparently has missed the point of the law. When Jesus sums up the righteousness of the law, he says it comes down to loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbors as we love ourselves. The Pharisee's version of righteousness, his tithes and fasting, is leading him not to love for others, but contempt for others. Thank you, God, I am not like other people. Thieves, rogues, adulterers, even like this tax collector. The Pharisee does not go home justified because the point of righteousness is to lead us closer to others. And if it's not leading us to love, to mercy, to grace, then we have not really grasped the heart of the matter that God has been merciful to us, that we might be merciful to others. But it's also so that we might learn to be merciful to ourselves. The parable also gives us another image to wrestle with, the tax collector. Sure, the tax collector was not consumed with self-righteous contempt for others, but I wonder about an unhealthy contempt for self. When Jesus sums up the righteousness of the law, it's not just love for God and neighbor. It's to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. We see clearly how the Pharisee is missing the point of righteousness. He's raised himself up so high that he is above love for this tax collector. But this tax collector, does he run the risk of missing the point by bringing himself so low that he's unable to love himself? Is he praying from a place of shame? Look at the prayer of the tax collector. When he prays, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, he's acknowledging guilt. It was common in the time of Jesus that people who collected taxes for the Roman Empire often collected more from the people than what was due and took the excess for themselves. These were folks who worked for the Romans but were from the places that they were taxing. So they were seen as sinful not only for their greed, but also for conspiring with those Roman oppressors against their own neighbors. The people who heard Jesus tell this parable would be able to name the sins they believed the tax collector guilty of. And I don't think the parable is trying to take away from that guilt, just like it's not trying to take away from the practice of righteousness with the Pharisee. The problem isn't righteousness or guilt. It's the way that we hold them. If we use righteousness to scorn others, or if we let our guilt become a shame that makes us scorn ourselves. That's what I'm wondering about with the tax collector. 
God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Fine, good, he's done wrong, he's guilty of sin, and he's asking God for mercy. But look how he prays this. Standing far off, beating himself up, not looking up to heaven. He does not pray for mercy with the confidence of a beloved child of God, welcomed home by loving arms of his heavenly Father, but with the certainty of rejection. This is not simply guilt, but shame. Where guilt might play a beneficial role in our spiritual lives as part of the process of repentance, as we turn from the wrong done, as well as the right we've left undone, and we turn toward the life Christ would have us live. But shame, I don't think shame has any role to play here. Shame is what happens when we linger in our guilt to the point where it no longer has anything to do with the wrong done or the right left undone, but has taken hold of our identity and doesn't let us go. Where guilt might help us understand how we fell so we can figure out how to get back up again. Shame just keeps us down, telling us we better not lift our eyes to heaven but stay at a distance. Shame keeps us from being able to lay hold of the, of the life Christ has for us, keeps us from believing that in Christ we are a new creation. The old is gone, and behold, all is new. Shame doesn't lead us toward the good news of justification because it keeps trying to remind us that no matter how much God might forgive us for our guilt, for mistakes we've made, there's no undoing the mistakes we are. That is a lie of the enemy. Shame is a lie. We are not mistakes. But of course we make mistakes. As people who are justified by God, we live lives of repentance. As we've mentioned, we remember October 31st, 1517, as the day Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to that Wittenberg church door, laying out his righteous critiques of the Roman Catholic Church, in particular the selling of indulgences. Oh, there's a spider on here. That's interesting. <laughs> and of those 95 theses, here's number one. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Repentance is a right and proper pursuit of righteousness, one that brings us together and raises us up together. Where the, the Pharisee misses the point of righteousness, that it leads him to contempt for others instead of being closer in love for others, the tax collector might miss the point of repentance in his shame and contempt for self. Confessing our sinfulness and asking God for mercy are not meant to pull us into a bottomless pit, swirling in a never-ending shame spiral. Repentance is a place of turning. It's a place for moving forward, not for getting stuck. Repentance is about empowerment. The sign of our justification on the day of the Lord, according to Joel, is not devastating, debilitating, self-degrading shame, but power in the Holy Spirit. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, says the Lord. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female slaves in those days, I will pour out my spirit. The good news of justification, that God is putting the world right, making us right with him and with each other and with ourselves, 
is the good news that God's own spirit has been poured out upon us all. Sons and daughters, young and old, slave and free, the spirit has been given to all, and all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. No one is left at a distance from God's grace. No one is a mistake. No one is rejected. All are welcome. All are accepted. You are not a mistake. You are not rejected. You are beloved. That's the good news of justification. That you, yes you, are today not only accepted in the church of Jesus, but empowered to be his church. I start my sermons every week with almost the exact prayer of a tax collector. Have you noticed that? Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us. We might recognize the second half of that from the familiar hymn, but the first part is an ancient prayer. It's called the Jesus Prayer. It's been used for generations in Eastern Orthodox monasteries where monks might pray it thousands of times in a day as they go about their business. It's a breathing prayer. I love the power of these prayers as breathing prayers, breathing in, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us. It's like breathing in God's living grace and mercy and breathing out that suffocating, constraining pressure of sin. As a spiritual exercise, it pulls together body and soul. As the lungs fill with fresh air, the soul is filled with the Spirit's liberating breath of life. As a breathing prayer, it anchors me in the reality that every breath I take is a sign of God's grace and mercy toward me. That I am completely dependent on Jesus for my next breath, for life itself, which he is glad to give me. You are not a mistake. You are accepted. You are a beloved child of God. Believe that for yourself today. Carry it in your heart, and you will receive the powerful and truly good news of our justification through Christ. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, Paul says, but you have received a spirit of adoption When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.